You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open up to Exodus chapter 21. Exodus chapter 21 uh, is where we'll be. I am I'm really excited to teach today. Um, I think because if I had to guess, almost none of you have ever heard a message preached on our text today, so that makes it kind of exciting and fun because you don't you don't have a whole lot to go off of. This is this will probably be an unfamiliar passage to you. It's definitely an unfamiliar passage to me. Um, there's a lot of odd things here that that we hopefully established last week. We're not going to try to tackle and fully understand as we continue through the book of Exodus. Right? We said last week that uh, God's character, seen through His law, is meant to be adopted into our normal rhythm of life as a means of imaging Him well making Old Testament applications of the law relevant, even if they're not authoritative for our lives today. So we want to understand how Israel was expected to apply these principles and uh, themes that we're going to see, but we're not going to always fully understand how it played out for them, Uh, but hopefully we can better understand how it should play out for us because we do know our cultural context, right? So for example, we're going to read about dads offering up their daughters uh, and, and being paid uh, to arrange marriages to get their daughters into like a better way of life. Like that doesn't resonate with me. I don't, I don't know how that would work. Now, not that I'm against arranged marriages. I would arrange almost all of my kids to marry just about any of your kids, right? And, and it's not for financial reasons. Um, some of you, it might be for financial reasons, but uh, for the most part, it would be for spiritual reasons, right? Like I value you as moms and dads in our church. I value the kids that are here at our church, I'd be honored if any of your daughters and sons married my daughters and sons, right? Like, that would be a great arrangement. That's not necessarily what's happening in this passage. It's, it's more financially based, super foreign to us to think in those terms. So there's going to be some cultural things that we kind of have to read through and say, like, I don't, I don't know how to fully help you understand how this happened and for it to make sense because it's not our culture. But again, hopefully we can pull out some principles that resonate with us to say, oh, but this is how it should look for our culture today. Okay, so we're going to jump in. We got a long text to read today. I probably bit off more than I could chew, um, but hopefully we can make it all come together and make sense before we leave here uh, in a little bit. So we're going to start reading in chapter 21, verse 1. It says, now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, he sh- she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed." When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, 
But there is no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judge determines. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner shall also be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to the same rule." If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. When a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share." Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the life past, and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. Chapter 22. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt, uh, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another's man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution." If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand into his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or any kind of lost thing of which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath and he shall not make restitution. But if it's stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it's torn by beast, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. If a man borrows anything of his neighbor and is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. All right, this passage would probably be most interesting to someone like Daniel Richardson or Rob Turner, right? Because these are guys who enforce the law and they interpret the law. So I would expect these kind of guys to, to read up in this and be like, man, this is good. Like this, this makes sense. Like this helps us to, to know. But what I want us to see is that we all need to read this and see, man, this, this should be intriguing to us because this speaks to our life. Now you can look at this and say, well, I don't, I don't have slaves. And that's an odd topic to even try to bring up on a Sunday morning, right? We don't, and we're going to talk about what it means, but a lot of us have people who work for us. So I can guarantee you this has something to say to us. A lot of us don't own ox, right? But we do own animals. And this passage has something to say about the responsibility that we have over our animals' actions. All of us have property, property that we entrust to, to others for care, and property that gets borrowed by others for use. And some of us have had our properties returned damaged. This passage speaks to what is supposed to happen in those situations. These laws were given as gifts to help the people know how to live in community, how to love their neighbor as their self, how to help solve disputes. 
really how to help eliminate disputes as well, because it should be something that they didn't have to argue about. They would already know how to handle when some of these things popped up. These are good laws. They teach respect for human life, for property. They deter would-be criminals. They satisfy victims appropriately. They deal with sin in a restorative manner. These passages deal with a level of ordinary existence and how to exist in that ordinary in a way that honors God best. It says that, uh, in my notes I put, God cares how we stand before him in worship on a Sunday and how we handle the neighbor who doesn't return a borrowed Blu-ray. Think about that. Like, God cares how we worship on a Sunday. He also cares how we handle a neighbor who fails to return something that they borrowed and they never give it back, right? There's a way to honor God best in how we do that. Uh, Some want to criticize these laws as, as though they're not supernatural, right? Because they like to criticize God's law by saying, hey, uh, these are very common to other laws at that time in other societies and cultures. The, the law of Hammurabi comes up a lot that, hey, there's a lot of similarities between the law of Hammurabi and the, the law of Moses. Why would we say one comes from God and the other doesn't? I think what's really different about the laws is key, particularly how the law of Moses speaks to how women are to be treated, how slaves are to be treated, how the unborn are to be treated. When you read these other laws of other cultures at that time, they didn't value human existence and human life equally. Uh, it gave preferential treatment to the rich. It gave preferential treatment to the, to the higher-ups of society, whereas God's law creates a level playing field for all. I think it also helps us to see that laws in other cultures simply point us to the fact that there is a God, right? That laws are written on our heart, that there is a moral right and wrong that even lost people understand. How does this passage help us? Well, it helps us to see what to do when intentional acts of harm are done to us. Helps us to see how accidents and unintended harm should be processed as well. How negligence on the part of somebody who leads to harm in our way. How we're to seek justice in an unjust world. There's some themes that we're going to see in this passage. Eternal applications. Even though the cultural application doesn't maybe resonate with us, the eternal applications should. That punishment should fit the crime. That intent should be considered when we make judgment against someone else. Who people are and how much money they have don't matter. Common people matter and they shouldn't be treated as though they're common. That's what God's law speaks to here. Restitution should always be made to the fullest extent possible. When we know we've done wrong, we should seek to fix it, while also showing grace when we are the offended party. That's the theme that's running through this section. Now, let me stop here and say that as we continue to work through these laws, more and more of you, uh, through your own stories, are going to see things that are, are condemned and things that are... That are uh, uh, rebuked and, and things that are talked about with punishment that you're going to say, I'm directly guilty of some of this, right? Um, my hope is that, that you wouldn't feel a level of guilt that's inappropriate, and yet you would see in the New Testament, such were some of you. Such were some of you, right? Like as we read through this, it's not meant to draw up things from your past to make you feel guilty once again. It ought to remind you that this is what I deserve and yet Christ stood on my behalf on the cross and took the wrath of God, right? He took my punishment. He has washed me. He has cleansed me. He has sanctified me. I also would hope that we would see that as we work through this, if we are currently guilty of some of this stuff, that we would seek to make it something that used to be us, that was us and is no more, right? So as we process through this, let's see the grace of God that, that many of us have been forgiven from things that are mentioned here, and that some of us may be in some of this, right? This whole idea of, of thievery and taking things that aren't ours, like we could really delve into that and find guilt probably in all of us within the last several years of, of things that we've done and to, to, to dishonestly gain. Man, may it be that that used to be us, that we've been convicted and we've been forgiven as we move past it, right? How do these situations translate today? These, these things that we read about here sound so foreign to us because culturally it, it's not anything that we deal with, but these would have been like headline news articles for them, 
These are things that would have been regularly happening for them. Things that that they would have dealt with, that they would have said, hey, we didn't know what to do in that type of situation. I'll give you some of mine uh, in my own life that that have come up, right? Um, and, and, I'll, and I'll stay clear of naming names, okay? Uh, but like, for example, we had a fishing trip back in the spring, um, and one of us had some things thrown away, right? And there was a discussion about who's responsible for throwing away this other person's things, right? I think this passage helps to speak to that, right? I have a cousin who likes to go on a walk, right? And there's a neighborhood dog that tries to bite him when he goes on a walk, and he has to carry a stick to beat off this dog, right? I think this passage speaks to what should happen in that situation, right? Yesterday, uh, some of us were at a piece of property working. We had hired a guy to come work for us. In the process of him using his equipment, the way that we told him to, his transmission goes out on his truck. feel really bad for him. Am I supposed to replace his transmission because he was working for us at the time? I think this passage speaks to that, right? And we've all experienced individuals who have made poor choices, have been negligent in those choices, and because of it, it has impacted people, whether accidental or intentional, where lives have been lost. I think this passage speaks to how we should process through those type of things. How do we handle the news line headliners in our own life? How do we handle and process, what am I supposed to do as I seek to live out my faith in my community with my people? How do I handle disputes? How do I seek to bring restitution where I need to make restitution? How do I handle when restitution is not brought where I was owed? I think this passage speaks to those things. Let's jump in, and we're going to give you some points to ponder, hopefully, that that resonate with you, even if this culture uh, doesn't make sense to you uh, as Israel was living it out. Our summary sentence for today, the gospel should impact our lives by creating within us a passion for making things right when we have committed wrong, while also being gracious and forgiving to others when we have been wronged ourselves. The gospel should impact our lives by creating within us a passion for making things right when we have committed wrong, while also being gracious and forgiving to others when we have been wronged ourselves. For our kids, when we hurt someone, we need to do all we can to make it right. And when someone hurts us, we don't try to get back at them in a mean way. That's what's happening in this passage. Moses is giving guidance to his people Israel through the, 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 the word of God, how to handle things like this. How do we process through it? So we're gonna jump right in in chapter 21, talking about how we're to understand a section on slavery. Number one, value every person as an image bearer of God. Value every person as an image bearer of God. Number one, value should be extended to those who come to us for work. Value should be extended to those who come to us for work. Now, these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. God begins to to give direction and guidance about how he is going to allow servitude, right? There's going to be servitude granted to the children of Israel, but there are guidance and safeguards to protect the welfare and the dignity of those serving. I want you to get this. There's constructive purpose for helping these people. The the ways that God graciously extends this this, this uh, culture of servitude, it was meant to help others, not just the masters, but those who were serving as well. Okay, um, it was meant to train others to be productive members of society. Those who had fallen into poverty, oftentimes by choices. Now we're going to see later that that some of these people who were in servitude were there because of their own doing. They had chosen to steal, and the law demanded that the restitution made for stealing would put them in poverty, even if they weren't in poverty already. That not only were they supposed to return what they stole, they were supposed to give back in abundance uh, on top of what they returned because of their stealing. And if they were stealing already, they were probably already poor, which meant they didn't have five oxen or, or five goats to give back for the one that they stole. 
So they would oftentimes have to sell themselves into servitude to make up the funds that they didn't have to clear their name with the law because they owed somebody for their thievery. This guidance and direction for servitude was meant to produce uh, members of society who were back on their feet. Now, the relevancy of this passage uh, towards American slavery is simply that American slavery in no way fits with the instructions given here. Like, there, there, there is no similarities really at all with what we think of as slavery, with what's being described here. Biblical slavery was way different, okay? And here's some key ways it was different versus our understanding of American slavery. One, it's voluntary, right? This is a voluntary act by an individual where they put themselves into servitude for somebody else because of their financial situation. They are in debt and they need work, Right? We know that in chapter 21, verse 16, the idea of, of selling individuals into slavery, kidnapping them against their will and putting them into slavery, you couldn't do that. And that was certainly what American slavery was, right? Capturing individuals, putting them, putting them into slavery against their will. This has nothing to do with what we think of when we think of slavery. It was also temporary, right? American slavery was not. The slavery that's described here was temporary. It was a six-year deal. The seventh year, you go free. And if you read Deuteronomy chapter 15, you didn't go empty-handed, right? Just like the children of Israel left Egypt after being slaves, and they were given an abundance of possessions in response, you had to give of your abundance to the individual who had been working for you the past six years. You didn't leave empty-handed. That's what I mean by this was meant to produce members of society who could now go back and contribute. This wasn't just taking advantage of somebody's uh, bad choice or decision and then the master benefiting from this. No, this was designed to help that individual. It's voluntary, it's temporary, and it was humanitarian. The dignity that's talked about here, and we'll see this as we continue to unpack this passage, uh, these people weren't treated like possessions. They weren't treated common. They were treated as equal citizens, right? They were treated with equal value. This arrangement was more like a contracted work that involved getting people back on their feet. Israel had been set free from oppressive, involuntary, racially-based slavery, and God was not going to allow them to continue it. Israel had been set free from something more common like American slavery. And God says, that's not how we're going to do it. We're going to help people who need help. We're not going to oppress them. We're not going to keep them against their will. This is going to be something that is helpful and productive and constructive. Israel's slavery also promoted the sanctity of the family, whereas American slavery separated families. This maintained families. Right? The instruction that's given here, if the individual arrives alone, he leaves alone. If he comes married, he leaves married. If he gets married while serving, there's provisions made for how to maintain that family too. He could commit to life to this master. Right? He, could, he could come and basically have his ear pierced and say, I want to follow this master forever. Right? It's a great picture of what our response should be to following Christ, that because he is a good master, we ought to surrender our life to him. Right? We ought to willfully say, for all of life, I will follow you. But he could maintain his family. Uh, we don't see it in this passage, but you could read in, um, let's see here. I don't see the passage here. Uh, Deuteronomy 15, we talked about with the empty handpiece. But you could also uh, work to purchase your family back. Um, you could purchase their freedom. If you didn't want to commit to life to serving this master, you could pay to have them set free. So it, it didn't work to separate families. It worked to maintain the unity of the family. Female slaves were also particularly protected. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, he who is designated for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. Um, the female slaves were particularly protected. They were allowed to, to pursue a better life. Again, this is where the financial piece comes in. We don't fully get it for our cultural context. But if a dad felt like, hey, our family situation is bad, 
And, and sometimes you see this play out in like uh, maybe, maybe fairy tale type stories where somebody wants to, to get their child into royalty so they can have a better life, right? So the idea would be that a dad who's tried to provide for his daughter, tried to give her a great life, can't for whatever reason and seeks to give her a better life by putting her into this situation. Arranged marriages were very common, right? Like we're, we're prone more to think that two should come together because of love, Cultural context, arranged marriages weren't seen as a bad thing. It was seen as a normal type thing. So this is something where it was arranged. There was a financial exchange. It was meant for the good of the female. And you see how it plays out, right? Uh, She couldn't be discarded later just because she's not liked anymore. There were things that were put in place to make sure that great value was given to her to protect her ongoing life. He can't just take another wife and, and discard her and let her go. That There were things that were put in place to protect her. Every human being should be valued as an image bearer of God, particularly those who come to work for us. Some direct application for us in our context would be that employers, those of us who have people working for us, we should not exploit our employees, but should seek to promote their welfare. We should help them advance with their lives. Any of us that have people working for us, we should be working to make sure that their welfare is maintained, that their family is protected. It's immediate application for our context. Secondly, I would say employers should be so good that employees want to work and don't want to leave. There's another application for us. Those of us that have people working for us, we should seek to be such good masters that are described here that people want to work for us. They don't want to leave. They don't want to go somewhere else because we take care of them well, right? God gives servitude for a reason. We don't fully understand how this works uh, culturally because it's not part of our culture, What I do want you to see here is that value is given to every individual person here. Image bearers of God, those who come to work for us should be treated with high value. Number two, value should be extended to those who frustrate us the most. People who frustrate us the most. As we get into verse 12, we see uh, violence that starts to spark up. And it it reminds us of Genesis 9 chapter 6 where after the flood, God gives guidance to Noah and his family that taking a human life is not going to be tolerated. If it is happening, then the human life will be required. Why? Because they bear the image of God is what we're told, right? This is where we understand the value of every human life. Image bearers of God, we don't take life. God is the giver of life. He's the taker of life. If we step in and play God, our life can be taken for it. Value should be extended to those who frustrate us the most. Look what it says. If uh, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death, but if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, he shall take him from my altar that he may die. What's happening here? This is uh, premeditated murder versus involuntary manslaughter that's being talked about. Capital punishment is instituted here. It emphasizes that people matter to God. Capital punishment applied to those who willfully and strategically take the life of another. There's an idea of plotting here that's talked about. There's intentionality to do this. Um, For those who aren't, right? For those who who are uh, in an accidental situation or an unintentional homicide, the death happens, but it wasn't the intent. Capital punishment's not applied here right? There, there's some grace that's extended. Now, there's still responsibility that applies, but he's prefiguring what's to come, this idea of a city of refuge where these people could run to to get a fair trial. Because the, the tendency would be for a relative to come take revenge on someone who took the life of another. Accidentally, unintentionally, a trial would take place, right? The capital punishment piece was not applied here. Human trafficking and kidnapping is talked about here. Why? Because life would be lost oftentimes. It couldn't be returned. Think about Jacob and Joseph, right? Jacob views his son's life as being ended when his brothers sell him into slavery. There was accountability here for, for, for not valuing human life. And the payment that was expected is based on the intent and the planning of the offender. And there's even discussions here about how it applies to our parents, right? Which really feels odd and weird to have people who are uh, intentionally murdering or kidnapping or maybe even unintentionally doing some of these things. And then whoever strikes his father or mother deserves death. 
Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. You read that and you say, well, I mean, how is that the same thing? Well, I think it helps us to understand context of what's happening here and what's really taking place. The parent piece seems to apply to intentional murderous harm from a child towards the parent. Or you could also say negligent care. Remember Matthew chapter 15, verses three through six, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. He calls them out for their hypocrisy because they're failing to take care of their parents. They're failing to give to their parents what is required by them as a son or daughter to care for them. What are they saying? They're saying, we gave that money to God. Sorry, like you're out of luck, right? We can't take care of you. Jesus is like, you're a bunch of hypocrites. You're a bunch of hypocrites. Like you think you're keeping this law and you're not. Like you're cursing your mom and dad. The idea being is that the, the, the child, right, who's probably no longer a child in referencing the mother and father here is not properly caring for this human life, right? This isn't that far from our cultural context where as people continue to get older, we start to devalue their life in our society where we think, hey, we can just go ahead and end that and it's okay. And this passage speaks to this. We give great care to our moms and dads until the Lord takes them home. And that that burden does fall upon us as children. They cared for us. We return the care in their old age, right? So what's happening here? Human life is being valued. Man, it is being emphasized. We care for one another. We love one another. We take care of one another is what's being talked about here. Number three, value should be extended to those who culturally don't matter. And I put it in quotes because they do matter, right? Verse 18, when men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and the man does not die but takes it to his bed or takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear, only he shall pay for the loss of the time and shall have him thoroughly healed, right? So here, these guys are scuffling If one of them had died, then there's a course of action that's taking place. But if he doesn't die, then, hey, the guy who's who's not beat up, he owes responsibility to the one who is, right? He's got to make sure that he's taken care of. He owes him money for the time lost of working. He also owes medical expenses to get him right. This is responsibility on the person's part who was quarreling, right? Verse 20 says, when a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged for the slave is his money. This part's obviously super weird because I don't get it culturally, but the idea being that, that the, the owner did have a right to install corporal punishment for egregious offenses by the, by the servant, right? But he couldn't oppress and he couldn't abuse and he couldn't injure, right? If he kills this person, he's held liable for murder. Again, a complete difference from American slavery, right? Where slaves would have had no value like this. This says, if you kill a servant, you die for it because that servant has value. Every human life has value, right? If he's just injured, there's no further penalty because the idea is that the master has hurt himself. He's caused injury to his own business because he put one of his workers out from being able to work, Then verse 22 says, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there's no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him and he shall pay as the judge determines. But if there's harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Man, I read that and I'm like, when did that happen? Like, who was reading this and thinking, oh, I remember that last week that happened, right? Those two dudes were fighting and they hit a pregnant woman and then she went into labor right there and she had her kid and everybody was like, now what do we do, right? Like, it seems like this had probably happened. There was some point of reference here to, to say, this is what should happen in a case like that, right? That there's, there's liability on these two dudes who are fighting and paying no attention to the bystander, paying no attention to the pregnant woman, right? The idea being that, hey, you got to pay up for the damages that you've caused, And if there were death, then we would assume that the capital punishment piece would be applied, particularly to her child. Again, human life's important. Old people are important. Unborn people are important, right? That's not just something we make up as as the church to push back on things that are culturally relevant right now. It's rooted in Scripture. Why do we stand against euthanasia? Why do we stand against abortion? Because of passages like this that tell us all human life is important, 
It comes back to the idea of slaves being important, right? When a man strikes the eye of a slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. Man, if he, if he injures the slave in such a way where, where there's true bodily injury, he's got to let him go, and he loses the money that's attached to it. Now, we'll talk about this at the end, but I think it's interesting that right on the heels of talking about the, the lex talionis of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, he gives direct application for what do we mean by eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth? Notice what the passage doesn't say, right? It doesn't say if the master injures the slave and his eye is no longer useful, that you drag the master into a room and gouge his eye out, right? It doesn't say if you knock the tooth out of the slave Now we got to get the local dentist to come rip your tooth out as a response to it. Notice that's not what's said here. What is the implication? That the crime has an equal punishment, right? That the crime has an equal punishment. That essentially you have rendered this guy where he cannot work for you. You now lose him. You now lose the ability to make money off of him. He's set free. He doesn't owe you anything. You've damaged him and now he gets to go free. He's completely released. Why? Because human life matters. It's valuable, right? And God put protective measures in place to where Israelite masters could not abuse their servants. Couldn't do it. Couldn't do it within the law. If they were following the law, this would have been a productive thing for people to get back on their feet. We value people. People who would say culturally don't matter. They're valuable in God's eyes. Value every person as an image bearer of God. Number two, create safeguards to avoid hurting others. Create safeguards to avoid hurting others. Verse 28, when an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner had been warned but has not kept it in and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner shall also be put to death. All right, so what happens here? If you got a crazy ox, right, who kills somebody, hey, that's not your fault. Like you can't control a crazy ox, right? So we're gonna kill the ox. We're gonna get rid of it because that, 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 that also shows the value of human life, right? The ox's life is not as valuable as the human life. So we take the ox's life, but the, the owner's not held responsible. But if your ox has been known to do this type of thing, right? You know he's a bit unruly. You know he's come close to gording somebody in the past. Now this is on you, right? So how does this directly apply? Well, you got dogs, that you like to run around and you know they're prone to bite other people, right? You let them out and they bite somebody, you're responsible for that. You're responsible potentially for the medical damages that come from that. Now, if your dog was like old yeller and he was fine until he got bit with a rabid, you know, uh, wolf and then all of a sudden he had a crazy day and he had never been crazy before, hey, you're not liable for that. You didn't know, right? But my cousin who walks the street and has this dog chase him every time he walks, that owner's probably liable for that probably needs to make restitution if anything ever happens, right? This has direct implications for us. A lot of us own animals. What are we doing to make sure that our animals aren't grazing on other people's yards, right? We'll get into that here in a minute. Create safeguards to avoid hurting others. Be intentional to avoid accidents and be gracious when accidents do happen. Number one, we assume responsibility when what we own causes harm. We assume responsibility when something we own causes harm. Animals, cars, things that are in our possession, they become our responsibility for how they function. Right? We ought to take care of our cars. We ought to make sure that our cars are in drivable condition, in safe condition, so that when we get into a car and we step out uh, onto the roads, that our cars are safe that we've done our due diligence to make sure that that car is safe to be driven so that it doesn't cause an accident for somebody else. This is the direct application for us. Create safeguards to avoid hurting others. Number two, we assume responsibility when our actions inadvertently cause harm. What continues to happen here? When a man opens a pit or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner and the dead beast shall be his. Right? This guy didn't mean to to create a, a, a pitfall for this animal. He got busy. He was building something. He was doing something. He left something unsafe behind. And then somebody came along and got hurt by it. This animal falls into the pit. 
Well, who's responsible? The guy who left the pit uncovered. He needs to make restitution to the owner. When one man's ox butts another so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price. And the dead beast also shall they share. Or if it's known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox and the dead beast shall be his. Do you see what's happening here? When there's, when there's unintentional harm and a complete unawareness that harm was possible, that person's not held liable. But when that person knew better, when that person could have taken actions to protect and doesn't, then there's liability here, right? We don't, we don't get to apply these laws within the church, right? Like we're not a governing authority that shapes daily life, but these principles are helpful for us when we find ourselves in situations with our community, with our people, what am I supposed to do and how am I supposed to act and feel if it's not done back to me, Right? That's what's playing out here for the children of Israel as they learn to live together. We need to create safeguards so we don't hurt other people. And then number three, we make things right with people that we wrong. We make things right with people that we wrong. We make situations right when we purposefully do wrong to others, right? If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, what's he supposed to do? Give it back and repay even more. If the thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there's no blood guilt for him. But if the sun is risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If he can't pay the, the expense back, then he's going to have to work it off. He's going to have to work it off. Um, if the stolen beast can be found and is alive in his possession, he gives it back and he only has to pay double. Why does he have to pay more if you can't find the original animal and less if, you, if, if he does? Because... The original is always better, right? Like if you had an ox that you had trained who was your ox, he did things the way that you wanted them done, then it's expensive to have to retrain another ox, right? It's great that you gave me one. It's great that you give me five more, but I still got to retrain him. If you can give me back the one you stole, you don't owe me as much. You still owe me because that was wrong for you to take my ox, but you don't have to give me five of them. You can just double it back because you got me my original back. You see how it's kind of playing out? Like these laws make sense. They're sensible. Why? Because they don't put too much pressure on the offender to where he has to pay back more than he should have to. This really is a biblical understanding of Lex Talionis that the crime fits the punishment, that God's justice is being served in what he asks of people who do wrong to others. They're expected to make it right and then some when we purposefully do costly harm to others. Notice how jail's not mentioned here. The thief doesn't seemingly have to go to jail. He's just held responsible to pay back into poverty, to pay back in such a way that puts him in poverty potentially, and then he has to work it off if he's unable. It protects the one stolen um, for, for, in a better way. Think about it. Like If you have somebody steal from you and they find him, he'll go to jail potentially. And you may not ever get your stuff back and you may never get any type of payment back for it. You're just kind of like out of it. Like you, you just don't get it back, right? God's laws protected those who were harmed. Like the thief had to give money back. He had to pay it back. These laws are good. They're right. They're just. Number two, we make situations right when our negligence does wrong to others as well. Even if it's not intentional, we assume responsibility and we seek to make restitution. The law shows it's okay for families of victims to receive compensation after accidents, especially when it's caused by someone's negligence. Now, it limits it, right? doesn't mean that we, can, um, that we can sue McDonald's for hot coffee, right, and make tens of thousands of millions of dollars back from it, right? So, so we don't get to just look for ways to go after people. But when, when true harm has been done, and the law says there should be restitution. Even if I can't give you everything back that I took from you, I need to do my very best to make restitution. It's okay for that. The law allows for that. Number four, we avoid blaming others who aren't responsible for our harm as well. We avoid blaming others who aren't truly responsible for our harm. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, what does he do? He makes restitution. He took from somebody. He gives the best of his back to that person who he took from. If a fire breaks out and catches in thorns so the stacked grain or the standing grain is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. Right? 
you're out having a campfire, your, your fire bleeds over into your, your neighbor's yard, that's on you. You got to take responsibility for it. But look what happens in verse 7. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe, you didn't have banks at that time. So I'm going out of town. I need to leave my valuable stuff with you so nobody comes into my tent and takes it, right? I'm going to give it to my neighbor who I trust. If I give it to you and it's stolen from that man's house, if the thief is found, then we enact what happens to a thief, right? But if the thief isn't found, we check and make sure the owner hasn't taken your stuff, right? We make sure that he hasn't taken your stuff and then he's not held responsible, why? Because you entrusted it to him. That was, that was your liability. You said, I want you to take care of it. Somebody stole, stole it from him. Not his fault, not his responsibility. You need to consider the possibilities before you pass off and also the embracing of responsibility to care for somebody's stuff. But then number two, so count the cost before entrusting your possessions to others' care. Number two, count the cost before loaning your possessions to others' use as well. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe and it dies or it's injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, oath of the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath and he shall not make restitution, right? You, you, you entrusted this stuff to me and then something happened to it, but it wasn't my fault. I don't owe you anything, right? But number verse 14, if a man borrows anything of his neighbor and it's injured or it dies, the owner is not being with it, he shall make full restitution, right? If I borrowed this from you, right? If, if you say, hey, will you watch this for me and it dies, sorry. But if I go say, hey, can I borrow your ox and it dies, I owe you an ox, especially if you aren't there. Now, here's the catch. If the owner is there, right? If the owner is there, um, then, then you don't have to make restitution because it's on the owner. And if you hired the individual, what you paid goes towards the cost of the expense of what happened there, right? So example I gave you yesterday, we got a guy who's, who's working for us on our property. We're asking him to use his equipment in this way and it breaks. We feel bad for the guy. We don't have to buy him a new transmission, right? Because we are already paying you for your services. You're the owner. We didn't borrow your stuff and break it. You broke it using it, right? And we were paying you for it. So we can say, man, let us know if we can do anything for you um, but it's not going to be to buy you a new transmission, right? So there's, there's things that play out here that help us to see when we are liable and what type of restitution we should make. Now, again, this is a lot of like, not a whole lot of doctrine today, a lot of practical application. What does it mean for us application-wise? How does this idea of lex talionis, which is Latin for the idea of the law of retaliation, what happens when we've been wronged? How does this apply to us as believers, I want you to get this. If you've missed everything else we've talked about, make sure you get this. Here's how the gospel impacts us. It flips how and when we use this law. The gospel flips how and when we use this law. Here's how we like to use it when we've been wronged, right? When we've been wronged, we love to bring up eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. We don't ever bring it up when we're the ones that do the wrong. We don't. Like our mentality is totally opposite of what it should be. It's totally opposite of how this law is even being presented to the people. The pressure is being applied to the people who have done the wrong. Hey, see what you're supposed to do. Too oftentimes we look at it and say, this is what you're supposed to do for me because you wronged me. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But boy, when it's flipped and we've done the wrong, then we'll find any excuse possible to blame anything and everything but ourselves. We want to dismiss responsibility. We want others to accept responsibility. We want to dismiss responsibility. Here's how the gospel changes us. We flip it. We flip it and we say, when we've done the wrong, man, I work hard to bring restitution. When wrong's been done to me, I don't fight for it. There's two great examples of how this fleshes out in the New Testament. One is Zacchaeus. Like Zacchaeus, when we have wronged someone, we should seek to make restitution to the fullest means possible. Jesus sits down with Zacchaeus and they have lunch. He says, man, I'm a thief. I've been trying to find satisfaction in possessions 
and I'm, I'm spending time with you now, Jesus, man, if we were still doing this, maybe they were at the time, man, pierce my ear, I'm ready to follow you for life. But, but before I do that, I got to go pay back everybody I stole from. And I'm going to give them back way more than I took from them. Not because some Old Testament law tells me to, but because the gospel is compelling me to do this. I need to make it right. Jesus brings up eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth as well, right? He says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I'm going to tell you something different. I'm going to tell you to turn the other cheek. Why? Because we leave the eye in the eye and the tooth for the tooth, not to ourselves individually. We leave it to the legal system. We leave it to the judges. We leave it to the authorities. We let that play out the way that it's going to play out, realizing that our justice system and our courts aren't perfect. Guilty people go free all the time. But we say, you know what? I'm going to let the courts deal with that. I'm going to let the the ruler and authority of this world who sees all, I'm going to let him deal with it when he comes back if it hasn't been dealt with appropriately. right? I'm going to turn the other cheek on this. Do you owe me? Yeah, you owe me. Am I going to bring that to your attention? No, not if the gospel's not bringing it to your attention. I can bring it to the attention of the authorities maybe, and if if we need to do something, we'll do it there. But man, my, my mindset is different because of the gospel. It flips it. I assume responsibility, right? I take responsibility. And, and, I, and I don't put that responsibility on others when I could. That's how the New Testament seems to change it. Seems how the gospel impacts us. Lex Telianus looks different when the gospel has impacted your heart. Like Zacchaeus, you say, hey, I'm going to give you all of it back and a whole lot more. And like Jesus says, hey, you just, you just slapped me. You just did me wrong. I'm going I'm to look past that, though. I'm going to look past that, though. Because of the forgiveness that's been extended to me by Jesus, man, I know I owe a lot more than I'm capable of paying back. I'm not going to demand it of you. I'm going to turn the other cheek. Let's pray together. God, this is a long passage today, challenging passage, confusing passage. Um, Lord, I know that we've probably left out a lot of application that, that you intended for your people when you first gave it. Lord, there's just a lot here that we don't understand culturally. Lord, I pray that you would bless my attempts today to try to make it culturally relevant for us by examining the types of things that we deal with and how we can live in community with one another rightly, how we can really seek to, uh, to make restitution when we do each other wrong. Lord, I pray that we would have a mindset that says every human being is valuable. So when I've done wrong to to a certain type of person. I don't get to make less restitution because of who they are in society. Men, women, slave, free, born, unborn, old and young. Lord, your, 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 your word says they're all valuable equally. God, we thank you for a law that speaks to that and shows that and doesn't diminish any single life. Lord, help every person that we come in contact with, particularly those of us who have people working for us. God, help us to never treat any of them common, to treat every one of them as an image bearer of you. Lord, I pray that we would put safeguards in our life where we can protect uh, ourselves from doing harm to others. Lord, help us to be mindful of where we're, we're liable because of our negligence and to take responsibility to shore up things in our life so that others don't get hurt accidentally by our lack of care. Lord, help us to care for others in such a way where we put safeguards in place to protect them. Lord, help us to make things right when we realize we've done wrong, whether it's intentionally or unintentionally. Lord, help us to make things right. And Lord, help us to avoid blaming others who really aren't responsible for the hurt we're feeling. Lord, help us to be gracious with accidents. Help us to be gracious with unintended harm. If somebody wants to make restitution, that's great. That's on them. That's the gospel work that you're doing in their life. But Lord, help us to not blame others for the hurts and the harms that we feel sometimes, particularly when it's unintentional. Lord, help us to have a gospel mindset like Zacchaeus that says, we've done the wrong, we need to do the fixing. And let us have that gospel mindset that Jesus portrays. When wrong's been done to us, we let you do the fixing. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.